Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we continue to reflect into the great Christian thinkers through the years. And my dear friends, we have arrived at another very important figure in one St. Thomas More, another great St. Thomas. We can go all the way back to uh, the Apostle St. Thomas, to, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas. Well, we have another St. Thomas, and that's St. Thomas More. What makes him so unique and so important? Well, this is what we're going to be about this evening. He has a message for us today, and I dare say, I dare say, as many saints we've talked about up to this point, St. Thomas More ranks in the top five for the message he has for us in uh, 2015. So I'm really excited for this evening. It is Monday, and so I have John O'Hara with me. Uh, John, great to have you with me another evening. Nice to be here again, Joe. Thank you. So, John, St. Thomas More, uh, truly a man for all seasons. As I speak to his relevance, John, and, and his importance it is right to cue the, the title of that play, that movie, A Man for All Seasons, because of his message today, which in its most simple form is the importance of bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, the importance of using our reason in light of faith to better understand and comprehend uh, the times we live in. So he has a message for us today because... When we think about St. Thomas More, certainly we think about marriage, given the historical uh, situation that he lived in, and the importance to witness to uh, what true marriage is about. Marriage, yes. And in this case, marriage and politics. Yes. St. Thomas More's uh, dates were born 1478, died 1535. He was about 10 years older than Henry VIII. Now, let me just go through some English history briefly. Sure, sure. Let's go back to King Edward III, uh, reigned around 1250s, around in there. His reign was a long one, and he was going to pass the throne on to his oldest son, John. John died of dysentery while fighting the war in France. Therefore, it passed through John to his youngest son, a kid named Richard. Richard was one year old when he was crowned king of England, and he had a regent. He went mm -hmm. on to become Richard II, a very poor king, kind of broke the kingdom with various wars, and he was assassinated by one of the other brothers of Edward III, who went on to become Henry IV. So here we have a problem. Succession really wasn't mm -hmm. followed correctly. Mm -hmm. Henry IV had a son called Henry V. Henry V was a great warrior king, Battle of Agincourt, retook grounds in France. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Henry V died in France of dysentery again. And the crown passed on to his son, Henry VI. But Henry was about one or two years old. So now we have a regent mm -hmm. and we have disagreements, and now we start the War of the Roses, because Henry VI was not a good king, and we had the House of York versus the House of Lancaster, briefly, mm -hmm. and we had the War of the Roses, which left several hundred thousand Englishmen dead in a population of about maybe two and a half million. Mm -hmm. It was devastating. It eventually came to an end around uh, 1487, the Battle of Boxworth, and Henry VII, a Tudor, slightly a Lancaster, came out the victor. 
So here we have peace, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. He marries the main woman from the House of York. I believe her name was Elizabeth. And it was a happy marriage. I mean, he was with her the whole time. And yeah. they had a son called Arthur, born around uh, 1486, I think. And then he had a second son, Henry. Now, Arthur was engaged to be married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella. She was older than Arthur, but it was a good match considering who these families were. Unfortunately, they were married. Arthur and Catherine were married, and then Arthur dies at age 16. So, hmm, now it's going to pass on to the next son, Henry. Well, Henry knew the marriage was never consummated. I don't think this was known that publicly. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he liked Catherine. She was older than he was uh, by some years. Uh, But he liked her, and she was a witty, uh, attractive woman, and they got married. Uh, And she gave him a daughter and several sons, but they were born dead or died in infancy. So we get to be around 1520. Catherine is now 40 years old. She's not going to have any children. And Henry has a problem, Mm -hmm. because who's (laughs) going to come and rule after him? He's got a daughter named Mary who, you know, there's never been a queen of England, and we don't know what kind of talent she has, but he has an issue. And it's a serious issue. Where is his son going to come from? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So along comes Anne Boleyn around 1527. Now let me go back a little bit to, to Thomas More. Thomas More was uh, born in England, went to St. Paul's uh, School, and uh, Bishop Morton was the Chancellor of uh, England, and also uh, bishops were frequently in this role. And he discovers More as a teenager and brings More along and sends him to Oxford. More does very well. His father takes him out of Oxford after about two or three years and sends him to Lincoln's Inn, a law school, where uh, around 1502 or 3, uh, Moore is admitted to the bar. Morton dies, and uh, Bishop Wolsey now becomes uh, the Chancellor of England and the head man after the king. And he becomes immensely wealthy, causing all kinds of animosity towards the clergy. Mm-hmm. A little aside, Moore is a brilliant guy. In 1515, while on duty for the English crown in Bruges in Belgium, he writes Utopia, one of the great pieces of Renaissance literature. And he has a home. He's a well-to-do man uh, because of his various offices. And Erasmus, the great Renaissance writer, Mm -hmm. writes Praise of Folly, probably the best of the Northern Renaissance writers, in Mm -hmm. Moore's home. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so this was quite a a crowd. They had very illiterate. Yeah, and it's important to note, too, St. Thomas More is a a man of letters. Clearly, he's a scholar. He is well-respected. He's well-liked at a very young age. And that work, Utopia, uh, while it be a, a work of fiction, he really gets into some uh, important political philosophy that will come back in his own life. I think True. I love it. <laughs> it was an attempt to mimic Plato, I think. It's yeah. a dialogue mm-hmm. between yeah. two people. Yeah. A very interesting, yeah. Anyway, to get on with his political life, in 1527, uh, Henry wants to marry Anne. He does need to have uh, an heir, and he does love Anne, and she's, she's quite something. I mean, she's a talented politician in her own right. Uh, Wolsey is unable to effect a divorce. We won't go into the details of that. And for that, Wolsey is fired. Mm-hmm. About two weeks after that, Moore is made Chancellor of England. That's quite a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1530, Wolsey dies, and at the same time, uh, Thomas More's father dies. So Thomas More had the great deal of his father, at least got to see him as Chancellor of England. And there's a famous portrait by 
Hans Holbein of the mm -hmm. Moore family. Mm -hmm. The original painting has been destroyed in a fire, but the original sketch that Holbein used to make it is around, and mm -hmm. it's, I forget what museum it's in, and lots of paintings of it have been made. If you ever get a chance to take a look at that painting, it tells you a lot about Moore's family. Yeah, just to interject, John, I believe that is in the Frick collection in New York. So if you are in uh, the state of New York and, and in, in the near future, uh, go to the Frick collection and you can see that famous uh, p painting from Holbein. So anyway, Moore at the beginning of his reign told Henry he was not going to get involved in any of the marriage issues, and this was fine with Henry. Henry already had a man named Thomas Cromwell, who was uh, a very handy lawyer. Now, Cromwell was a Lutheran. Moore, of course, was a Catholic. Henry VIII was a Catholic. But there was Protestantism going on. Remember, 1517 was Martin mm -hmm, Luther's uh, mm -hmm. coming out. Mm -hmm. And um, so we have the two of them going back and forth. And the divorce was unable to be affected. So what is Henry going to do? Around 1531, Henry begins to pass laws taking property from the church. There had always been an issue over this. For one thing, we had civil law and church law. They had always been arguing about that. And Henry begins to pass laws making himself head of the church in England. Mm -hmm. At first, it was head of the church in England as long as Catholic law permits. And then it was head of the church in England. When that mm -hmm. happens, Thomas More resigns. Well, that was a big blow. Mm -hmm. uh, Henry marries uh, Catherine of Aragon secretly, although she's already pregnant with Elizabeth by a, for about a month. Then she is crowned, and now she is queen. More is now out of office. To cut to the chase, several laws got passed around 1534. The major one was the Act of Succession, mm -hmm. which said that no issue of Catherine of Aragon could become queen. Catherine Aragon will not die until January 1536. She dies before Moore does. Mm -hmm. I mean, she dies after, after Moore. Yeah, after yeah, Moore, yeah, yeah, right. So um, the fact of succession says that no issue of Catherine of Aragon can become the queen of England. Okay, that means that that marriage is no longer valid, which Moore could not accept. Okay, so with that, when, when Moore did not say that the law was bad, he just simply refused to comment on it. But he is arrested and put into the tower along with Bishop Fisher, mm -hmm. a cardinal. Well, he's not, not a cardinal, he's a Bishop Fisher. So now the two of them are in the tower, and they have and, and they're, they're, the hang-up is the act of succession, namely that no issue of Catherine Aragon could become, could ascend to the throne of England. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was only one person so far who could do it, and that was Elizabeth. Okay, mm -hmm. we will not get into uh, Anne Boleyn's further children because sure, more, more sure. is dead by this time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was not soon thereafter, Han John, that we find him in Westminster Hall where he is on trial for high treason. And as many of us know, because of a great deal of political maneuvering and jury tampering and conjoling, he was sentenced to high treason. And we're going to talk about this here in a bit, but I want to first say something about who he was as a person. He was a family man. He was a man who sought out holiness wherever he went. Um, while he was versed in the law and in rhetoric and uh, the letters, all of those disciplines led him to go deeper into his faith. So as we talk about him as a chancellor, he in fact was a chancellor of holiness, and this is why he was not going to acquiesce uh, to the king, and this is very important. An interesting anecdote about him, when he went to get married, uh, he was seriously considering the priesthood, but he didn't feel that uh, that was his call. Mm-hmm. He uh, went to a Mr. Col I mean, he was looking for someone to marry, and he went to a John Colt, and John Colt had several daughters, the second of which was quite attractive. 
but it would not be nice to marry her and not take the first daughter. So he married Jane Colt. That was his wife. Mm -hmm. With her, they had four children, mm -hmm. uh, three daughters and then a son. And then Jane died around 1510 rather suddenly. And he married Adel Alice Middleton, a woman who was older, uh, to kind of look after the kids. Thomas Moore, I think, fasted every Saturday, every, every Friday. Every Friday. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and he wore yeah. a hair shirt, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a man of great devotion. And those little things um, are big things because they really do furnish him with the necessary strength to stand up for what he stood up for. Um, and so, speaking of that, John, I wanted to get into uh, this famous speech in Westminster Hall. Um, and for those of you who have been to England and have had the chance to go to Westminster Hall, it's, it's, it's quite a sight, you know, I mean, there's a lot of rich history there. So, again, after the, you know, political maneuvering, if you will, the jury tampering, uh, he was sentenced to high treason. And this is what the judge says, Sir Thomas More, you have been found guilty of high treason. The sentence of the court, and then Moore intervenes, My lords, when I was practicing law, the manner was to ask the prisoner before pronouncing sentence if he had anything to say. <laughs> so the judge, have you anything to say? Moore responds, yes. Since the court has determined to condemn me, God knoweth how, I will now discharge my mind concerning the indictment and the king's title. The indictment is grounded in an act of parliament which is directly repugnant to the law of God and his holy church, the supreme government of which no temporal person may, by any law, presume to take upon him. This was granted by the mouth of our Savior Christ himself to St. Peter and the bishops of Rome whilst he lived and was personally present here on earth. It is therefore insufficient... <laughs> This is, this is Thomas More after he's been condemned. Insufficient in law to charge any Christian to obey it. Ah, listen to that. And more to this, the immunity of the church is promised both in Magna Carta and in the king's own coronation oath. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Cromwell, now we plainly see you are malicious. Sir Thomas More, not so. I am the king's true subject. And I pray for him and all the realm. I do none harm. I say none harm. I think none harm. And if this be not enough to keep a man alive, then in good faith, I long not to live. Listen to that. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, it is not for the supremacy that you have sought my blood, but because I would not bend to the marriage. <sighs> the judge you have been found guilty of high treason. The sentence of the court is that you be taken from the court to the Tower of London until time and place that will be appointed for your execution. Wow. I mean, listen to that exchange. You Beautiful. don't have any power over me. Beautiful. Have we heard those words before? Isn't that I interesting? I wish we heard it more <laughs> often. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but those words and how they echo Christ, it's so striking. Uh, boy, that, that is stirring. Um, a few details about the trial. Mm -hmm, he, mm -hmm. uh, he was interviewed with Cromwell and a man named Richard Rich. And uh, remember, uh, Moore was accused of four things, innocent one, innocent of three. There was one that condemned him. He was in the conversation with Richard Rich, and there was a, uh, a device lawyers used in which they, they were talking about a point of law, and to talk about it, they made up a, kind of a make-believe situation, and they argued it with this make-believe thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what he and Rich did. And it was from that make-believe 
item that Rich said actually more, you can tell by this conversation we had in this make-believe conversation about a, an imaginary court case similar mm -hmm. to this, that, that, that he is guilty. That was what did him in. Yeah, yeah. To get into the heart of the man, John, is to look at how he prayed. You talked about his penance, his self-imposed suffering. I pulled up, there's a number of prayers you can find that, that come from St. Thomas More. Uh, this one uh, is, is a prayer that he encouraged lawyers to pray, that he himself prayed. Listen to this prayer. I prayed that for the glory of God and in the pursuit of his justice, I may be trustworthy with confidences, keen in study, accurate in analysis, correct in conclusion, able in argument, loyal to clients, honest with all, courteous to adversaries, and ever attentive to conscience. Sit with me at my desk and listen with me to my client's tales. Read with me in my library and stand always beside me so that today I shall not, to win a point, lose my soul. He closes in this particular prayer, pray that my family may find in me what yours found in you, friendship and courage, cheerfulness and charity, diligence and duties, counsel and adversity, patience and pain, their good servant and God's first. Amen. John, this is a prayer, faithfulness, and a prayer, John, of integrity, deep integrity. Oh, if our lawyers would pray this today, huh? I want to go to one particular phrase, ever attentive to conscience. Mm -hmm. Ever attentive to conscience. Yes. What is the conscience? Well, the conscience is the law that is inscribed upon our heart, formed, right? It informs all of our encounters. It's interesting. In 2010, then Pope Benedict XVI spoke in Westminster Hall. Wow. And in an act of uh, provoking providence, there is Benedict XVI addressing all of the dignitaries of England. And 10, 15 seconds in, John, invoking the intercession of St. Thomas More. And isn't that interesting? What, almost 500 years later, St. Thomas More is vindicated? You know, not in a secular context per se, but in this providential context. Because what was Sir Thomas More's issue? What did he say to the judge? You have no authority. Yes. And here is Benedict XVI, the vicar of Christ, who St. Thomas More was talking about. 500 years later, calling upon St. Thomas More and saying, and this is most striking, believers and non-believers alike have a deep respect for this man. Why? Because he was loyal to his conscience. Yes. He was dedicated to his formed conscience. Now, that was not the only reason. Uh, Benedict XVI didn't go into Westminster Hall, John, to say touche. No, it was more than that. He went there upon calling to St. Thomas More, invoking his moral authority, because what was at the heart of his issue? as we've been talking about, but the need, John, to see philosophical and religious forms of reasoning, guiding, instructing, leading our democratic deliberations, right? Our philosophical and religious forms of reasoning are not an end in of itself, but a means to an end, yes. so as to achieve the end in Jesus Christ, right? Sir Thomas More was 
steeped, John, steeped, and this is what you get in utopia for sure, in a clear understanding of how good philosophy, a good religious form of reasoning can actually guide and steer us to the potential of who we are called to be, yes, in our relationship with God, but also within the state, right? And so Benedict XVI, all these years later, is talking about this. And you know, not only was he right in what he said about uh, believers and non-believers appreciating this man, but as some tell the story, he received a standing ovation. In 2010, John, just a month before he was there, I just missed him. I was doing what I could to see him, but I couldn't. I was there in Oxford, and I remember some of my tutors. Now, when I say tutors, these are the instructors in, in, in Oxford in England talking about them going to Westminster Hall. They were going to be present, and they were not fond of Benedict XVI. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I had some of those same tutors the next year. And they could not speak enough praise about him. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I think a lot of that was just not his eloquence, because as you and I both know, and many of our listeners know, one of the strengths of Benedict Sixteenth is he's so articulate, so yes. clear, uh, like that of St. Thomas More. Correct. I mean, St. Thomas More, as he's the patron of lawyers, can be the, the patron of how to articulate the English language. Um, it was also about getting to know the man you know, and their encounters with him. So for all of this, as Benning XVI talks about the importance of using philosophical and religious forms of reasoning, the importance of abiding in a formed conscience, it is so that we do come to realize the importance of what this man stood for and how we can learn from him, John. Yes. How we can learn from him in 2015, because Lord knows you said it, just not marriage, yeah. but marriage and politics, right. huh? marriage and politics. And so we need to uh, pray up, verse up, study up so we can have those necessary conversations, mindful yep. that we can't devour a conversation because St. Thomas More would never do that. He understood the art of listening because to listen better is to speak better. And he knew that. And so we learn from St. Thomas More in that way. I agree. He was a man for all seasons. He, uh, he's one of my favorite saints. And I just, he went through all of the hurly-burly of life with dignity and in God's grace. And in a, that society, as in our own, because we are in very similar circumstances, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a model for all of us. Joe, one last thing about Thomas More. When he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, four people were burned at the stake. Uh, one, a man named Thomas Hinton was uh, prosecuted under uh, Wolsey's administration, but burned during uh, Thomas's administration. Three other people were burned at the stake. A man named John Tewksbury, Thomas Dugstate, and Thomas Bilney all had sold, we'll call them heretical books. These books could not be sold by law, and they were breaking the law, and they knew it, and they had been warned beforehand, and they went back and did it again. They were burned at the stake. Mm -hmm. uh, not a pleasant way to die. Now, 30 people had been burned at the stake uh, prior to Moore's, uh, for about 200 years before Moore's time, and then four under Moore, so we are looking at about the average being kept up. But 
Some of the adversaries of Thomas More, NPR radio being one, have said, no, wait a minute, this guy killed for religious reasons. He was killed for religious reasons. What goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. Well, now, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Thomas More was enforcing the law that was already on the book. Remember, the society probably executed a person a day yeah, in London yeah, somewhere yeah, or another. That's just yeah. the way penology was. Yes. So, uh, I, you know, I have some trouble with this take on that NPR said what goes around comes around. And it's not reasonable, no. right? I mean, because, again, as... As is often the case, when you go back into the historical context, it becomes reasonable why some of these things took place. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, John, because okay. I do think that's very important. And certainly yeah. um, that has come up in some of my own conversations um, about St. Thomas More. But it's okay. something that a simple explanation can really help us better understand. So very good. As we kind of wrap up our time together, John, I, I did want to highlight one last thing by way of a postscript. St. Thomas More was also a man of humor. Again, a humor full of integrity, not some of this uh, joking around that we have so much today where there's a lot of crass language and the like. No, he saw that there was a kind of therapy in laughter, a healthy therapy, if you will. So he would pray often this prayer that I'm about to pray and we can maybe close with, and it's worth noting, Pope Francis prays this prayer every day. Oh. Pope Francis prays this prayer every day. So this will be our closing prayer, John. This is uh, from St. Thomas More. Grant me, O Lord, good digestion and also something to digest. Grant me a healthy body and the necessary good humor to maintain it. Grant me a simple soul that knows to treasure all that is good and that doesn't frighten easily at the sight of evil, but rather finds the means to put things back in their place. Give me a soul that knows not boredom, grumblings, sighs, and laments nor excess of stress because of that obstructing thing called I. <laughs> Grant me, O Lord, a sense of good humor. Allow me the grace to be able to take a joke to discover in life a bit of joy and to be able to share it with others. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.